Hello, and welcome to the Betsy Boss Podcast. Welcome back. We are back in the saddle again, and even though today's topic has nothing to do with Josh Duggar, (laughs) we do have a little bit of liberty to spill in the form of an update. Yes. And it's good news. Well, goodish For the most part. Yeah. Um, Josh Duggar is going to serve... (laughs) Drum roll, please. (laughs) So he was sentenced to 12.5 years about, but they're thinking he'll serve about 10 years. Which, you know, not nearly enough for everything that he's done horribly, horribly wrong and the monster that is Josh Duggar. But he is getting put away for at least 10 years and that's good. Although the one thing like that still does concern me is, yeah, he has some older kids now that will, of course, given the cult they're in, be married off by the time he's out. But his youngest daughter will be like, I don't know, like 12 at the oldest when he's released. So still not good. Not a good situation. Not great. I was going to say they didn't even get out of the age group of the people that are in danger. Because, ugh, that is just beyond fucked up. And it's, he just should get thrown away and the key should get swallowed and it's just awful. And his parents should not accept him back, but... Of course, we know that's not how it works in the Duggar cult. It's, it sure is. <laughs> uh, but if you if you want to listen more, because for me, I've obviously been a creepy obsessor over the Duggar family and know all things Duggar. We did several episodes. So episodes 42 and 43 and then 55 through 58. <laughs> we clearly, you know, did a deep dive on the Duggars and some good, interesting stuff and a good background to kind of catch you up to where things are now. Absolutely. Definitely worth getting back there, checking out all that there is to listen to because we have quite the menagerie of episodes at this point. Yes, absolutely. And today's topic, still, we're not departing from the creepiness, um, but it was actually recommended to us by a wonderful listener by the name of Joanna Cottrell. Cottrell? Uh, either or. We're saying both. So Joanna Cottrell. <laughs> <laughs> you are a great gal. We You sent us the coolest message. And she's also... Yeah, your message was, like, really hit me. It was really nice to hear. Oh, it warmed our hearts so much. She's also a big fan of women's history, pop culture, unsolved mysteries, all the things that we just love talking about here at Betsy Boss. And I really... It just... It warmed our hearts so much. And she suggested a topic that actually I've wanted to delve into Mm -hmm. more for a long time. We have talked about it. Yes, because... The perpetrator in this case is somebody who I actually find very handsome. I don't know about you. No, I agree. I I agree. He's, I mean, just conventionally good looking. He really is. He, um... And even as he aged, like... Yes, he aged very gracefully. Probably even more so as he aged. (laughs) Yeah, not to say we're on the guy's side, but, like, man, he... I would fall into that trap, too, because... Today's topic is Scott and Lacey Peterson. Yes. And wow, don't date a Peterson, right? That's what I was saying. I was telling you right before we started recording, like I've seen this out there somewhere else, but the last name Peterson is just a curse, it seems like, with husbands. So you have Michael Peterson, the good old staircase. You have Drew Peterson, who killed at least two of his wives. And now we're on to Scott Peterson. Terrible. Yeah, I'd approach any Peterson with a lot of hesitancy. Yeah, keep both eyes open and yes. uh, 
Peeperson into his <laughs> record if you can before you <laughs> before know. you Peter Path out of there <laughs> exactly. But yeah, so we've got a lot of information and. Who knows? Maybe this will even turn into a two-parter. But oh, I think it definitely will. We've yeah, got a lot to go over. There's a lot to talk about with this with this fella. Yeah, and I think the interesting thing to me, I want to say up front, kind of the main source or one of the main um, points of information that we're kind of covering here is from the A&E documentary series, The Murder of Lacey Peterson. There were also obviously other sources that we looked into, but... I feel like this documentary was kind of a good angle to at least include the information from because back in the day when this case, you know, following it live and even since then, I feel like it's been presented as so cut and dry. I still think it is probably, you know, leans more one way or the other. Um, But it's interesting to kind of approach it like they did in this documentary where it's not all just, you know, straightforward, like he did it, he did it, he did it, like they present other possibilities, different information that definitely wasn't out there in the media. And so I think kind of approaching it from this angle will be interesting and different. Yeah, I think that that is exactly right. It's kind of good, too, to just shed some light on, you know, what could have been. Right. Maybe it's less likely, but it's so hard to look at this family, this, you know, young husband and wife and think, man, he was just a cold-blooded killer and right. there's no two ways about it. And again, the evidence does seem to lean more to that direction than to any other, but mm-hmm. it's good to have an alternative causation. Yeah, yeah. And I think it's a good counterbalance given the fact that, like, everything that's out there is so Scott did it. So approaching it from that angle, you know, if you're Gets listening. Off scot-free, if you will. Oh! nice one nice one i like it right i like it but yeah so getting into scott's background since we do love a timeline here yes he was born on the fateful day october 24th what a day remember what a day it was and he was born in san diego california lucky bastard and his parents did have other children from other relationships but he was the only one that was from their marriage together. And like a typical douchebag, he started (laughs) playing golf at an early age, and he actually was really good. He excelled right away. He really took to it, and he actually could have gone pro, um, and he didn't, um, but his... (laughs) He he didn't. Um, His dad really pushed him hard, put a ton of pressure on him, and, you know, obviously this was golf-related and other thing-related, but he did end up going to college for golf, and he got kicked off the golf team and transferred to California Polytechnic. And that's, unfortunately, where Scott met Lacey Rocha in 1994. <laughs> in the fucking roaring Christ. 40s. <laughs> right? God. Yeah. And, okay, this I thought was just kind of weird and interesting. She was an ornamental horticultural major. Random. Where do you see that major offered? And, like, at a polytechnic school? Yeah. Like, I don't don't know. Yeah, who knows? I don't know. That's an interesting... I wish I was that major. Yeah. I I mean, I don't, but... (laughs) I mean, yeah, what do you do? Yeah, that's a hard one. But still, I mean, okay. Yeah, yeah. 
So they got married in 1997 and Scott was actually a year behind Lacey in school because of the transfer. So look out for those younger men. Uh And within their first year of marriage is apparently the first time Scott engaged in an extramarital affair. So right off the get-go, like this is first year of marriage. He's stepping out on the marriage. already. Yeah. Uh, Then in October of 2000, they moved back to Lacey's hometown of Modesto. That's where this whole story kind of takes place. And then, you know, just kind of typical track of a young married couple. In 2002, Lacey was pregnant. Lucky bastards. I know. (laughs) Homeowners and starting a family. Way to go. Right? So we fast forward to December 23rd, 2002. This is Christmas Eve Eve. Yes. And at 5.45 p.m., Scott and Lacey went to a salon so that Lacey could get her hair cut. And this is where Lacey's sister Amy worked. Now, while they were there, Scott offered to pick up a fruit basket gift. The, the gift basket that nobody really wants. But uh, okay. of course, yeah, the, the last Although minute they can, gift. They can be good if they're. They can be good if they've got like the Godiva. Like, I was going to say, right... yeah, yeah, like the Harry and David's like, I don't know, good stuff. But this oh, one probably yeah. wasn't. Exactly. And, uh, you know, of course, Scott is the gift that keeps on giving. Oh. So he's got to bring a subpar gift on top of that. <laughs> Um, but yeah, so Lacey had ordered, Lacey's sister had ordered this for her grandfather and Scott said that he would pick it up the next day, which was Christmas Eve, because he'd be golfing. And apparently Scott told other people he'd be golfing on Christmas Eve too. Now, this is California. These lucky fucks get oh to God. golf year round. Yeah. Um, we don't exactly have that luxury out here <laughs> no, in would not uh, be happening. Philadelphia. But Lacey's mother last spoke with Lacey that night, so 12.23 at 8.30 p.m. And this is relevant because there is a question about events possibly happening on 12.23 rather than Christmas Eve. It's still possible that this happened after Lacey spoke with her mom. Yeah, and I, I don't think throughout the case that ever gets necessarily cleared up i mean i don't know you'll you'll be able to decide by the end of it based on everything we say but um that was one thing that was brought up especially early on in the case yeah so now we move to december 24th 2002 christmas eve and in this whole kind of timeline we're going to give a brief overview i think this episode is probably going to be more based on just setting the timeline setting the groundwork and then Next episode, we'll definitely delve into more of the details and a uh, little more specifics on the evidence. But starting on December 24th, the day starts off at 8 a.m. with Lacey and Scott waking up. Scott stayed in bed a little bit longer because he's a terrible guy, lets his eight months pregnant wife get up and start the morning. <laughs> <No>. <laughs> and he's probably exhausted from catting around the night before. Oh, yeah, exactly. Exactly. Yeah. Who knows where he's been? But when he comes downstairs, she's there mopping the floor, and she said that she's going to take the dog for a walk later that morning. Great. Uh, sometime between 9 a.m. and 10 a.m., they're apparently watching Martha Stewart, which is Lacey's favorite show, which really takes you back. I don't know. Just thinking yeah, about that, that sure being does. on the air. It's kind of crazy. Right? And it's not Martha and Snoop, the, right. the new show. And the puppy bowl, too. Exactly. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, what a time to be alive. What a time. 
So between 9.20 and 9.40, so this, again, kind of narrows it down a little bit between that time period, a neighbor says that they see Scott, only Scott, outside loading umbrellas into the back of his truck, which is kind of weird. And meanwhile, his whole line of thought was that he decided that it was too cold to go golfing. So instead, I'm going to do fishing. So who says that they're going to go golfing, decides, wait, it's too cold out here. Let's go to a freezing body of water. Someplace I might get wet where it won't make it worse if I were cold. Absolutely not. Yeah. Like, a little weird. And then he's loading umbrellas onto the truck. Okay. To what? what? Yeah. Keep yourself dry from all the fish that you're going to catch? Yeah. Are you putting that on the boat to, like, block the sun? Like, what's going on? Why is that? Yeah, what's going on there? So Scott is going to his boat, which is stored at a warehouse, and this is about three miles from his house, so pretty close by. And then kind of jumping back, 10, 18 a.m. Oh, yeah. I hate this I hate part. this so much because either way, it's terrible for the dog, the poor thing. Although the dog is fine. The dog is fine, but it's still like. And he wasn't a witness to everything. I know. But either way, it's just like, it's oh, not the poor thing. Ugh, utterly so, negligent. Yeah, just, oh, yeah. Either way, the poor dog, nobody cared about him in the situation. <laughs> Either Scott didn't care about him or a perpetrator didn't care about I him. Poor know. guy. Probably Scott, though, let's oh, be honest. Yeah, I know, which makes it worse. Like, Ugh. he trusted you. He loved you. I know. What a dick. Ugh, yeah, so a neighbor finds the dog, Mackenzie, wandering around. Mackenzie! Ne- I know, and it's a boy, Mackenzie. That's like, weird. That's cool. that's a random name for a dog i know the he was wandering around the neighborhood with his leash still on and this neighbor apparently he Mackenzie had done this before oh really Mackenzie was a frequent flyer he was a frequent fleer he would you know he would run when he got the chance and so god wouldn't you if you uh, were in this situation god I can only imagine he's probably like I can't watch this shit go down yeah like he knows he knows what's going on but the neighbor just throws him in the back was like up here he is again we'll just put him in the in the backyard of the Peterson's house closes their gate kind of goes on their way um and there are other sightings, apparently, of Lacey. We'll get into that probably next episode because I did find it really interesting and there's a whole kind of map we can kind of go down. Um, but then 10.30 to 10.56 on this morning, Scott is on his computer at the warehouse sending a Christmas greeting to his boss and also looking up how to assemble a woodworking tool that he already had received for Christmas, which also, you know, could be yeah. used for other things little weird yeah not to mention like classic gift fiend like literally <laughs> yeah. so fucking selfish that you can't even wait to like assemble Seriously? your gift he probably like, bought it for kid. himself he like, probably did a present from me to me yeah here's your present merry to me. christmas <laughs> like, yeah not the best but um so then after this scott heads out for the marina which is about one and a half hours away from the warehouse he arrives there around 12 45 p.m and this is the Berkeley Marina. And we know that he arrived there because he got a receipt for parking there. So either way, could go either way. But it does always kind of make me a little suspicious when it's like, oh, you've got so much against you stuff to kind of show like I was here. Look, see, like, you know, here's my receipt for it. 
Right. And so then from about 1 to 2 p.m. is when Scott said he was in the water there. Didn't catch anything. Oh. Of course not. What a surprise. But you did yeah. throw something into the water. Yeah. He, he caught a life sentence. That's what he caught. <laughs> <laughs> so true. Yep. So right around 2.15 p.m., Scott left the marina and he calls Lacey and leaves a message. And in the message, he says it's 2.15 and that he's leaving the marina. And he asks if she can pick up the fruit basket because he won't be able to make it there in time. And it sounds a little bit like a classic, he's trying to establish an alibi. He's so specific about the time and the location. Mm -hmm. I mean, he could so clearly be just covering his tracks and, you know, acting like Lacey's still with us. exactly, And that he has no idea that anything might be wrong. Yeah. And he's also very like hey beautiful like oh, whatever in it. and it just yeah. yeah i didn't love it so yeah that's so creepy yeah, yeah. so then at 4 30 p.m he arrives back at the warehouse to drop off the boat and then he drives home and the there were a couple things that seemed weird um and scott kind of confirmed this and said that these things were a little bit off he saw the dog in the backyard with the leash on and the front door unlocked. And it's important to note that Lacey's car was in the driveway at the time that Scott pulled up. And he went in, supposedly, put his clothes immediately in the washer. Little suspicious, I, y'all. Yeah, literally, like, stripping down as you come in. You didn't even catch anything, so there's no way you can even smell Have like fish, fish or blood something. or something. Yeah. Exactly. Well, and on top of that, like, what is this pre-COVID COVID? Like, right. you're going to do the little strip right. off in the garage yeah. and, like, throw your shit in the wash so that you can't get COVID on your stuff? Yeah. Come on. Mm, I don't like it. Me neither. So, from there, he eats some pizza and he showers and meanwhile, shower pizza, a uh, good choice, Scott. The <laughs> first good choice you've made the yes. entire story here. For real. And then at 5.17 p.m., he calls Lacey's mom, Sharon, asking if Lacey is there. Obviously, Sharon says no. Another thing where it sounds like he's trying to just establish, well, I was looking oh, for her. arrived home. She's not Where here. could she be? <laughs> Believe it or not, Lacey isn't at home. So leave a message at the beep. Anyway, at 547, Lacey's stepfather, who is really close to her and a lot more like her actual father, called 911 to report her missing. And then there at 6 p.m., the Modesto police arrived and they met Scott and Lacey's mom looking for her at East Loloma Park. And the police person asks to go back to the house and Scott says, absolutely, come on down. And the police don't you know, see any evidence that there was a forced entry, a struggle, anything going on in the house. So off the bat, you know, Scott seems compliant, letting him in the house. Nothing seems necessarily amiss aside from the fact that Lacey is missing. So, you know, they continued to interact with Scott and then um, kind of the end of that night, we're going into Christmas Day, 1225, from 12 a.m. to 1 a.m., Scott voluntarily goes down to the police station to be interviewed. He's very cooperative. There's video of the of the interview. And this was the one thing I remembered from the case uh, back in the day that I don't I don't know. It's just kind of like a weird thing. Uh, in the interview, they ask him about the Martha Stewart show because he was kind of going through a timeline saying what they did that day. 
and they asked him, do you remember, you know, what they were doing on the show, what the show was about? And he said, I don't know. I think they were making cookies like meringue or something like that. And this was actually later proven to be correct. It was the right show that he was talking about. And I don't know. You, I feel like you could read it either way. It could be, you know, obviously proves that he and that Lacey was alive that morning and they were watching it or that, I don't know, Scott could be so weird and calculating that he kind of planned out his morning to establish his alibi and made sure that he watched that show. Which, you know, possible because it yeah. sounds like he's trying to cover his tracks in a lot of other ways. So maybe he thought that far ahead. Who knows? I don't know. I'm just always cynical about it because I've seen too many of these where it's like, well, if you wanted to do it this way, you would obviously make sure to, you know, have a good alibi from start to finish when you wake up in the morning. So right. who knows? Um, but this this just is, again, kind of weird to me. He says during the interview that the reason he went fishing was because he wanted to get the boat in the water. So this was a new boat for him. It was a used boat that he bought, but this was the first time for him getting it in the water. I don't know. The whole thing about going out on Christmas Eve in general with your heavily pregnant wife at home just seems very odd to me. Yeah, not normal. And especially when the motivation is just to get the boat in the water. Like, huh? I'm going to drive like an hour and a half away to get this boat in the water. Right. I don't know. It's questionable to me. Um, But he says emphatically that there were no marital problems. This is obviously important and will come up later. And at this time, he was also asked to take a polygraph test, and he said yes, that he would do that. Yeah, so all signs pointing to Scott being very cooperative. At this point, he's probably looking pretty unguilty. Yeah, yeah. Like, he's, he's looking Let okay. Let them in the house. He's, you know, interviewing with them. Yeah, he sounds good. You know, he's checking all the boxes. But here we roll into Christmas Day, and... Scott comes back later in the day for another interview, and the police said later that they were surprised that he wasn't acting like other family members they had worked with in similar situations. He didn't ask for updates. He wasn't asking, you know, what are you guys doing to find Lacey? He was really just kind of being cooperative, answering their questions, but had no questions of his own, which little unusual if your wife Wife. and mother of your unborn child goes missing, you'd think that he would take a little bit more of an interest. Anything. Ask anything. Ask anything at all. So during this time, he called his father, telling him that they wanted him to take a polygraph. The dad said, don't do it. And so Scott didn't. Typical yes man. Yep. (laughs) And probably was the right choice. And this can obviously be seen as a clear strike against Scott. Even though polygraphs are unreliable, just the fact that he didn't want to take one, it's clear, you know, that he's avoiding something. And whether that's his own guilt or if he's just covering something else up, it's not great for him. Yeah, and I've I've heard in other cases that police officers will oftentimes ask people if they'll take a polygraph just to see if they'll say yes or no because they'll see that almost as a willingness to cooperate or an indication of guilt or innocence because, you know, regardless of how the polygraph comes out, like the person was willing to take it. I don't think that's necessarily a great barometer because – there's psychopaths out there that yeah. can pass it. Uh, but I have heard that before that I think they'll be looked on more favorably if they say, yeah, I'll take it or yeah, I'll cooperate. Right. 
So obviously one of the reasons that this case is so well known is because of the media. And the media picked up on the, on it right away and then it was kind of nonstop coverage since going forward. And this happened around Christmas, so it was kind of the perfect timing where news is slow, there's no story, you know, kind of going on. Almost reminded me a little bit of John Bonet. Totally. Like, yeah, the the news is is slow around this time and you get a crazy case like this, it's going to take off. And they were also obviously the perfect subject, this beautiful couple. She was pregnant, expecting their first and child. And can't you see her face and that picture that they used clear yes. as day? Sitting like, in the chair, like, oh holding my God, her holding stomach. Oh, my God, holding her belly. Yep. yep. And she's got a big, you know, broad smile. And him, I mean, he's so handsome. Yeah, they're the perfect couple. Yeah, they really looked pretty perfect. Yeah, and... I mean, it's a small community. They you know, sprang into action right away. They were searching the park, searching surrounding areas, passing out flyers. There was even a volunteer center established at a local hotel. So even local media, it obviously just took off right away. Yeah, they were rallying the troops. So day after Christmas, December 26th, Scott voluntarily let the police search his home and again, this is just another important indicator showing that he was voluntarily cooperating all the time, you know, right. and from the jump. Right. So, you know, again, things aren't looking good for Scott, given what we know. Right. But we, it is important to establish that, look, he, he was cooperating. Right. And he wasn't shutting off, you know, certain potential places for evidence right. against him. Yep, exactly. And then, so, December 28th, 2002, the police asked Scott to consent to a second search, and they asked him to consent in writing. And Scott wasn't quite so sure about giving his consent in writing, and he wanted to talk to an attorney first. And he didn't hear back from the attorney in time. Clearly, the attorney was like, fuck this. I'm out. <laughs> yeah. I'm not representing this fucker. Oh, I have all. a friend. It's uh, probably maybe. like a family friend that yeah. like does real estate law <laughs> yeah, or something. Exactly. Like, bitch, I'm, I wasn't cut uh, out for this. Yeah, the Brian Laundry style. <laughs> right? The real estate Oh, my God. Exactly. The family, uh, you know, financial consultant. Yep. Anyway, so he didn't hear back from him on time. So the police executed a search warrant and searched his house. And the media went wild over this little tidbit. And it's just so clear here and in this case in general that the media just has a lot of power to twist that Scott flat out didn't want to give the consent to search his home. And it's so easy for them to seize on that and to let that fly kind of into the faces of, you know, these consumers who are just taking in all this media. Yeah, and it, again, kind of reminds me of the JonBenet case where they were like, oh, there were no footprints in the snow where, well, there wouldn't be because if you saw pictures from that day, like, there were, there wasn't a lot of snow, paths were cleared, but, like, you know, that is the message that gets out. Oh, he didn't consent. You know, right. When really, it could be because he was waiting for the attorney to get back to him. Right. But speaking of the media, Scott definitely had an interesting relationship with the media. And I think whether he's guilty or not, this definitely worked against him. So to most people, the way he interacted with the media, or rather how he didn't interact with the media, was very strange. Scott didn't want anything to do with the cameras. 
And typically in these scenarios, you would expect the husband to do whatever he could to get Lacey's face and story out there to get her back, be on any television show he could, pleading his case, etc. But Scott, you know, later claimed he was like, oh, I, I stayed away from the media because I wanted the focus to remain on Lacey. And I thought if I was out there speaking or whatever, it would distract from her. Um, you know, and distract from people looking for her and her story, which does not make sense to me. Zero. Yeah. And you're like, a, if you, anything, they're going to see a grieving, young, right. attractive husband and think, oh, my God, we got to find this broad. Somebody right. cares about her. Yeah. It, it just I don't know. He's not a stupid person. And I I feel like that just is not a logical argument to me. No. So many said and it's obvious that he was very aloof and he also didn't look like he was grieving. And I think we have to throw out the disclaimer that, you know, <laughs> as you can hear with my tone, right? Uh, you know, there's, there's no handbook on how to grieve, but just personal opinion. I think there's kind of common human reactions. And I know you can't necessarily use these things against him. Like you can't say in court, oh, he didn't cry enough or he didn't appear in front of cameras. But... I, I don't know. I just feel like there's certain reactions where it just is like, oh, that really does not feel right. Yeah. And when you're outright avoiding the media, yeah. when everyone and their brother else in that similar situation would be begging every media outlet possible to feature you and your wife and your story, it, it doesn't play well. Absolutely. On December 27th, 2002, there was a press conference and Lacey's parents speak at the press conference and they are genuinely and visibly emotional and they make a plea, which is so sad, to the public. And at this point, they were still behind Scott. They didn't think he had anything to do with anything. You know, they thought that he was on the right team and Scott was not even there at the press conference, which just you know, add it to the stack of complaints about Scott. So another interesting event, after this press conference, it came out that there was a burglary the day Lacey went missing directly across the street from the Peterson house. And it was reported by a neighbor to have occurred Christmas Eve morning. And the neighbor knew the residence and was driving by around 1140 AM. And that neighbor saw suspicious activity and, Uh, They saw people and a van parked in front of the residence. And when she drove by, everyone stopped, turned, and stared (laughs) at her. Which is my nightmare. Which is the creepiest thing I have ever heard. That sounds like Inception or something. (laughs) But yeah, super freaking weird. And what are the odds that two crimes would occur directly across the street from each other at the same time? And maybe the witness got the date wrong. There's the thought. But then again, when it's Christmas Eve. I know. It kind of, it's hard to fuck up the date when it's such a clear and obvious day that we all remember. Right. You know, I know it's not the same thing as Christmas Day, but it kind of is. But even with Christmas Day, you'd kind of equate that like, oh, it was the day before Christmas because I was preparing for tomorrow. Like Right. Like that just puts a calendar to all of this. Absolutely. And, you know, how could they really screw that up? So that's just, you know, another kind of plausible deniability slash, you know, just something to think about. Absolutely. So on January third, two thousand three, the police held a press conference and actually addressed this burglar 
this burglary. They said that they had two people in custody, and these people were Steve Todd and Glenn Pierce. And within a day of arresting these two men, they actually stated that there was no connection to Lacey's disappearance. Which Scott must have been so pissed. Uh, But I also have to say, like, that seems pretty quick to kind of just totally rule it out. Dismiss it. Right. And, like, how did they know? Yeah, that's – I'd be very interested, you know, to see what actually kind of – led them to that and it actually also came out and this i want to dig into a little bit more because i feel like this has been kind of confusing um but it came out that the burglary actually occurred on december 26th not the 24th well so my question is who conflates the day after christmas with the day before christmas i know like that's dumb yeah yeah i i agree i just think especially if they knew the people that lived there like I don't know. I just feel like it'd be pretty clear what day this happened on. So then we're jumping back just kind of a few days before that, though, on New Year's Eve, December 31st, 2002. And this event will come up time and time again in this case when we talk about it. This was a vigil, a candlelight vigil that was held for Lacey. And at the vigil, again, Scott would not speak to the crowd, the media. Lacey's family was kind of the the face of, of... the family and um you know speaking up asking people thanking them for being there asking people to continue to look for Lacey and I feel like this is kind of typical in a lot of cases there were also pictures of Scott laughing and smiling to me I don't know I think that's hard to take out of context unless you have just like hours of pictures of him giggling at the vigil yeah like I don't know even at a funeral like there's things that come up or, you know, just even some people to try to lighten the mood or who don't do well with grief, you know, will try to make a joke or something. So I get that it looks bad, but I won't say that that is the nail in the coffin. No. Yeah. And I wouldn't really count that for anything. Um, but the vigil is important because it's a well-known event for exposing another disgusting <laughs> aspect of Scott Peterson. And this was his relationship with Amber Fry. <laughs> pronounce like french fries <laughs> god and what a horrible adulterer scott was i mean my god yeah awful person awful so whether or not he committed this murder which like mm, all signs yeah. are kind of saying he did yeah so who is amber fry and how the f is she connected <laughs> amber in a lot of ways was also a victim of this case um in 2002 she was a single mother to a one-year-old daughter she had just put herself through massage school, which is kind of hilarious just because, I mean, those magic fingers, right? Mm-hmm. Let them do the talking, I guess. Yeah. She was living in Fresno, and her friend introduced her to a guy she met at work um, at this convention in November 2002, Scott Peterson. Now, this poor mom, I mean, just imagine. Ugh. You're a young mom. You're single. You're working hard. You're going to massage school. And somebody finally, finally says they have someone. You finally for you. have a friend that's looking out for you and trying and, to connect and you. And trying with people. to connect you. Imagine what that must Ugh, be like. I can't. Um, <laughs> none of our friends would have set us can't. up. I can't. Not bitter. Um, not but. bitter at all. So this was five weeks before Lacey's disappearance, Ugh. and Scott presented himself to Amber as not being married. 
lovely guy. Oh, yeah. He came to a Christmas party Amber hosted. There are photos. Mm-hmm. And imagine Lacey is home, eight months pregnant. Ugh. Just horrible. And yeah. he's out catting around at a Christmas party with Amber Fry. Like, come on. Yeah. So not long after the party on December 9th, he told Amber he had lied to her and that he had something to confess. Mm-hmm. This is where things get beyond freaky. Yeah. And also just, I'm sorry, but Scott, you have just enough rope to hang yourself with, buddy, uh, this because is, this is bad. If we're going to say equate to Josh Duggar, this is... What was someone looking up child pornography? <laughs> like, is that it? Oh, oh, okay, that's weird because mm. nobody even hinted at that. No. Ugh. So he said, "I got something to confess." He has all this build up, and he says, "Listen, I was married before. I lost my wife. This is going to be the first holiday without her. It's going to be really hard, and that's why I wasn't truthful about you know formally being married." Now remember. This is before Lacey Mm -hmm. even went missing. Weeks before. Weeks. And so clearly, hashtag motive, this asshole completely revealed his own fucking motive. Mm -hmm. And of course, Amber didn't push for any more details. I'm sure, like any of us, would feel awkward as ass. Oh, yeah. And would probably just be thrilled that this nice poor widower widower is taking an interest in her and her child right right and feels so comfortable to open up about you know this terrible thing that he's experiencing and going through in his life exactly i mean who wouldn't forgive him if they thought that story was real i'd forgive his ass oh i'd be like yeah i'm you know however much you want to talk about it i'll be here to listen but i'm not going to be like tell me more details exactly yeah yeah so eventually though she does realize who scott is so um scott told amber that he would be traveling throughout europe for the holidays and i believe he said it was for work so amber you know she said she wasn't big on the news newspapers etc she was working she had a young child now meanwhile (laughs) do you think she said that to him before all this he's like perfect target oh yeah i'll be in europe (laughs) don't Don't look for me in the news yeah don't check around (laughs) Pot Skeeterson. (laughs) (laughs) So Amber was also just far enough away from Modesto where if, you know, this was a local case for sure. And if she's not paying attention to the news, she's not going to see things about it. But it still really didn't take her long to hear about good old of potty skeet because <laughs> we were hearing about it all the way on the east coast yeah yeah you'd have to be you know helen keller not to know about it and even she's getting the message somehow exactly <laughs> yeah the braille articles would have come yes. out by now so um a few days after christmas a friend showed her a newspaper article which don't know what that's like today but right um and she said hey i think this sounds like your guy Scott Peterson. (laughs) And so then Amber obviously realized right away what was going on. And on December 30th, she called the police. Immediately, they went to interview her. They interviewed her for about an hour. And they asked if she would be willing to cooperate with them. She immediately said yes. So all of this happens really quickly. They go right away to buy a recording device for her phone. And actually, while they're there connecting it to her phone, Scott calls. 
Wow. Yeah. She said she was really nervous. Also, she kind of phrased it like, uh, you know, the police were right there and I'm I'm talking on the phone trying to be normal. Reminds me of being in the office on the phone when it's like all these people around you listening. Like, right. Even that alone is it's terrifying. terrifying. Um, so good old Scott, still up to his lie, said that he was in Normandy. Oh, of okay. course. Storming yeah. the beaches of Normandy. Yeah, why not? And that he had a really bad phone connection, but he didn't. He'd be in Paris tomorrow celebrating the new year. Now, meanwhile, ah, the timing. New Year's Eve. The timing is everything. I've I thought about this too, and I I should have looked into this more because I think he didn't think about it and didn't think she'd think about it. Like exactly. But it's pretty obvious because on December thirty first, <laughs> I could not get that out. <laughs> on on December thirty first, he calls Amber. And this is the recording that if you've looked at this case at all, you kind of hear. And exactly what you're saying, the timing. We should look into this, this is to the see vigil, if it lines up. y'all. The yeah. night of the vigil when he's supposed to be mourning and Ugh. he's smiling and giggling like a little schoolboy. Right. He's smiling and giggling because he had his girlfriend on the line. And he says, I'm here in Paris at the Eiffel Tower watching fireworks ringing in the new year. Um, again, like we're saying with the timing would would that be happening at the same time i don't know right absolutely <laughs> probably not, not. <laughs> so stupid just we la jeune fille i am a young girl <laughs> <laughs> and um so while these recordings were going on and amber was talking to scott the police did not tell Lacey's family about amber they at the time the family like we said was still sticking behind him and the police wanted to kind of keep this a secret as long as they could to continue to get information out of scott which is hilarious that these well it's fucked up but it's crazy that these two things were happening contemporaneously while they've got the mistress in the office yeah the family is still backing scott at the vigil as he continues to do nothing right and the family is the face of the missing person on the phone with his mistress on On the phone with amber yeah it's awful so they ended up getting uh, 29 hours of conversations out of this. So he talked a lot in that short amount of time. Chatterbox. Yes, absolutely. So on January 6th, not to be confused with the insurrection, 2003, <laughs> right. there's a recording of Scott and Amber's conversation. And Amber plays dumb and says to Scott that she got a weird message from her friend saying that the friend was worried about Amber. And... She tried to ask Scott, hey, why would my friend be worried about me? Huh. Why would my friend say this? And Scott pretends he doesn't know what she's talking about. Yeah, he's just like, it's like silent for a minute. He's like, huh, just cryptic message, I guess. <laughs> like, They're like, really great. bad. Thanks a lot, Scott. <laughs> Helpful. Good excuse. And you're like, not the best liar. No. Um. So then in mid-January, and remember, at this point, Nobody but Amber knows about the relationship with Scott, and they don't know that the police know about the relationship with Scott. It's Amber's holding all the cards here. Yeah. So the police in mid-January get word that the National Enquirer got pictures of Scott and Amber at the Christmas party Mm -hmm. and that they were about to publish them. So at this time, the police told Lacey's parents about Amber, and the parents instantly stopped supporting scott and Lacey's mother said to the police 
why did he have to kill her? This he they had to have had suspicions like before for them to just instantly be like, "Yep, nope, we knew it." You know, and like, that was all it took. Mm-hmm. Although I'll tell you, like if it was my family and I got you know whacked, yeah, and this like husband was kind of being unresponsive, like not great with the media, I'd probably like defend him, right? And then something like this comes out that oh. he was cheating on me. I would feel like such a dick. Oh, yeah. So then on January 24th, 2003, kind of the police are forced to hold this press conference where Amber addresses the public. And if you've ever seen this, like, I really do feel for her in this. You can tell she's just like shaking, just very emotional and very anxious up there, like, I don't think she had any idea what was going on. And to be in that situation, to have to address the public in this huge case, like, ugh, just being in that position, knowing that, you know, she's probably dead and her poor family, like. Ugh. And that you've been hooking up with a murderer. Right. Ugh. And letting him around your daughter, like, oh, it's terrifying. Yeah, from all from all sides. Yeah. Um, but it was pretty clear the, the police wrote a statement for her. It was just very straightforward, very fact-based. And, you know, like we said, when you when she got up there, she was just shaking and you could see her true emotions up there. She said that Scott initially told her he was not married and she gave her condolences, you know, said she was very sorry for Lacey's family and then just kind of made her statement, stepped down, didn't take any questions. So kind of put it out there in the public because they had to, but we're not going to let anybody kind of ask any questions or extrapolate on it. Yeah. And that's probably for the best. Yeah, I think it was the right way to do it. So wrapping up on January 25th, 2003, Scott at this point is like... He's got to be livid because at this point he knows that Amber has been working with the cops, but he still continues to contact her. This baffles me. Yeah. And I don't know. I mean, Amber must have really been something special for that to happen. Magic massage hands or something. Right? Because she's working with the cops at this point and you are public enemy number one. Yeah. So that very day on January 25th, Scott calls Amber up and says some disgusting things. He says he was proud of her for speaking up and that it showed her character. Awful. He said he pulled over and threw up when he heard her crying during her speech. And at this point, he said he was going to speak to the press. And this is where we're going to begin next week. Yes. Yeah. It gets even more interesting as we kind of go to the second half of um the timeline actually probably we're probably like two-thirds through the timeline now so we'll just wrap up the timeline and we're also going to go into more evidence obviously when Lacey and connor's bodies were sadly discovered the trial a little bit more details on the evidence and then finally this was kind of interesting to me some more recent developments in the case so stay tuned next week it will be an interesting one to wrap up this case more to come Thanks so much for listening to today's episode of Betsy Boss Podcast. If you'd like to find us online, we're on Facebook at Betsy Boss Podcast, on Instagram at Betsy Boss Podcast, on Twitter at Betsy Boss Pod, and our email is BetsyBossPodcast at gmail.com. Also, Betsy Boss is now on both iTunes and Spotify. If you like what you hear, please rate, subscribe, and comment. Thanks again for listening. Thank you.